Once upon a time, in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. Although he had everything his heart desired, the prince was spoiled, selfish, and unkind. It was upon the untimely death of this good man, however, that the stepmother's true nature was revealed. Cold, cruel, and bitterly jealous of Cinderella's charm and beauty, she was grimly determined to forward the interests of her own two awkward daughters. Princess, where are you? It's very spooky in here. I ain't playing no games. Well, at least we know where the princess is. But where's the dragon? What the? And either the words "I love you" will release you from the spell. As for Austin and me, well, I finally got my cell phone back. We wound up going to Princeton together and lived happily ever after. At least for now. Hey, I'm only a freshman. Once upon a time, I was hungover. <laughs> and that time is today. Sue me, it's the summer, whatever. So I am going to slightly phone this one in, but I feel like that's fine, because we all know what fairy tales are, more or less, and also our expert did a really wonderful job of going more in depth. But I did manage to type fairy tales into Wikipedia, so that was great. And here are a few things just to get us started off. Many of today's fairy tales have evolved from centuries-old stories that have appeared with variations in multiple cultures around the world. They were originally called fairy tales because there were actual fairies in them. Other mythical creatures are often mentioned in these stories such as dwarfs, dragons, elves, men who don't leave, etc. Main characters also often had quote-unquote magic helpers, which coincidentally is what I call my Xanax, so I totally get it. These stories come from long before we had the written page and were thus passed around orally. The fairies I know pass around something else orally, but I am pretty sure it's unrelated. Also, these stories were originally as much for adults as they were for children. But what makes a story a fairy tale? How do these stories approach adult topics like sexuality or death? And what can we learn from these fairy tales that could still be helpful in the year 2022? That's what Brooke would like to know. Brooke Candy is a rapper, singer, songwriter, and really so much more. I moved to New York in 2009, and Brooke Candy was really the talk of the town. Stylists like Nicola Formichetti wanted to dress her, photographers like Stephen Klein wanted to shoot her, magazines like V wanted to give her a 10-page spread. She was just the moment. Sia, who was a frequent collaborator of Candy's, described her as a feminist glam alien which feels pretty accurate, actually. And while much of her artistry is obviously music-based, her visuals are a big part of what makes Brooke Candy such an icon unto herself. Brooke Candy is, if you will, eye candy. Just follow her on Instagram if you're a dum-dum and you don't already. Her album, Sexorcism, came out in 2019, and she's currently ramping up to release new music, which will be upon us later this summer. Our specialist on today's show is Dr. 
Gina Jorgensen, who has a PhD in folklore with a minor in gender studies. She also studies body art, feminist approaches to folk narrative, dance, personal narratives, digital humanities, speculative fiction, the occult, and historical constructions of gender and sexuality. Enjoy the show. So I'm going to start with like a pretty big question. I kind of wonder why you got into music in the first place, because I feel like you could have branched out in a lot of creative directions. And then that was sort of your instrument of choice for a really long time. And I wonder why that was. Looking back, I think I was surrounded by a lot of really creative people and everyone around me that I kind of admired happened to be making music. I remember meeting Grimes out I think we were out at Mustache Mondays, maybe, or it was like, we're out at a, at a gay party and like we were dressed to the nines and she was up and coming and I really admired her. Everyone that I just really like thought was doing something really unique and inspiring was making music. So music is everything. I'm a, I'm a fan. <laughs> it kind of happened organically. And initially I, we were just messing around, you know, we were like making music on our MacBook and me and my best friend, we actually started a little rap group, the two of us, and we were just having fun with it. And then it kind of just took off in a great way. I moved to New York in 2009. Maybe you did like a performance at Westway or like it was something I don't know what the initial introduction was it was obviously not something you were doing to become a big huge mainstream artist it was too kind of on the fringe it wasn't necessarily going to be everybody's cup of tea but it definitely was like the cool kids cup of tea I don't know if you were even actually living in New York at the time I was living in LA around you said 2009 2009 yeah that's when it started and that was like like mustache Mondays in LA was a thing it was a ghetto gothic was a thing and Mm -hmm. this like underground ground queer scene of like rap music and it was yeah that time was just so fabulous I thank you for saying that yeah I've never really tried to be everyone's cup of tea I've just tried to be me and so I'm like whoever likes it I'm grateful for that I mean, but you know, like now that was a while ago, I was reading your recent paper magazine interview and you were talking about sexorcism and you were like, you know, three years ago is like 30 years ago. So we're talking like 12 years ago, which is even longer. But first of all, that's so true. Three years ago feels like 30 years ago. And I know you have new music coming out, but I guess I'm wondering both personally and artistically, where are you now that you were not three years ago? I think I'm a lot more grounded. I'm trying to make a different sound as well. The music is just, I'm approaching it differently. I'm approaching it maybe a bit more seriously. I'm trying to just make what I think is like good pop music. And Mm -hmm. I'm trying to approach it with like singing. I'm singing more. I don't know. It's maybe I'm trying to make it a little bit more digestible because I am quite kooky. So (laughs) I'm coming from a place of feeling very grounded, feeling very grateful and I'm having a lot of fun with it. And I'm like, I have no expectation. I'm doing everything on my own right now. Mm -hmm. Just seeing what happens, kind of just taking it step by step. And it's definitely very difficult, but I'm having a lot of fun. It almost kind of feels like it's funny that we're talking about like 2009 because it feels like I have that same drive and that same lust for performing and the just creation of everything. It feels like as exciting as it did then. You were posting, it was maybe 
two days ago or something, you were posting about an old performance you had done just being like, these days were so dope, looking back on stuff and really thankful for your like really early days. I feel like sometimes artists will maybe look back and be like, oh, I don't love the music I was putting out in the beginning. Or I also remember the album you did with Sia had a lot of really good just pop bangers, you know, like Paper and Plastics, one of my favorites. So you've kind of done some of this before and maybe you're just leaning a little bit more into it. Does that sound right? Definitely. I think it's coming from me now. Like I actually want to go that route again because I right early on in my career, I felt like I skipped a hundred steps and I didn't have enough time to be weird because I signed a record deal and then I was like, let's be mainstream or like, let's have a big pop song or, and I just skipped so much fun. And so now I've like had all the fun. I've been very, very crazy and kooky. And so now I'm kind of, jumping back into that space where I'm like, okay, now this makes sense to me. And I'm like older now. So yeah, approaching it in that space is makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) What are some of the ups and downs of being as independent as you are now? You have so much creative freedom, but you know, obviously labels and things can be helpful too. So I'm just wondering like where you are with your mindset around that. Well, definitely having the right support can really level up everything. And like my dream now, I, I I never really felt strongly about performing. It gave me so much anxiety. Like I would, right before our show, I would just turn into a ball of nerves and just cry. And it was terrible. Now I, I performed in New York recently and it was like the most exciting, amazing experience. And all I kept thinking to myself was like, if I could just do this every day on a large scale, I would be in bliss but just to do that takes teams of people and so much money and so having definitely the backbone like the team would be amazing or just like having more money to explore all of my creative ideas would be amazing but I'm hoping like that will that will come naturally and I'll just take it you know like slowly because I've yeah. I've had both now now I've like done everything myself and I've had a label and neither really worked so now I'm kind of trying <laughs> weave in what does and work slowly and like celebrate each little victory that I get kind of on my own and yeah <laughs> it's living and learning and I I lied because I want to ask one more thing before we get into the fairy tales which is just you've been teasing out new music obviously there's new music coming this summer there's more like I think a full project is maybe coming out in the fall what can you tell us now, I know there's some really interesting inspiration, like Britney Spears, you're trying new things. I would love to hear about it. Yes, I am very inspired by Britney. She was the main reference point for the album, Blackout specifically. It's like my favorite pop album. Her best one. Her, her like darkest time and best music. It's definitely it's the peak. So she's definitely a huge inspiration. Everything about her. She's just so punk rock. And... She just fills me with joy. And so the new music is like a kind of an ode to that kind of era of sound and pop star. There are some cool features, some new artists that are just, I'm a huge fan of. I've gotten to work with some people on this album that are just so incredible. I feel super lucky. And what else? The first song should be out in like a month or two. And then the rest will fall in the fall. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm just like super grateful to still be doing this and to still get like the opportunity to talk to you and (laughs) just to have like anyone still care. It like feels really cool. It feels cool. Like just every moment of this, of performing and, and like just creating and 
still being able to do this and I just feel really lucky. I'll just say I hope you also feel the like anticipation that everybody has for it and that everyone feels lucky that you're putting out new stuff also. I don't ever feel that because I'm always like stuck in my head and I'm so anxious and like cuckoo. So I never know. I think it's really hard for anyone to feel any level of their own success or even that people, I don't know, like the product they're putting out. Like, I don't know. We all we all just like torture ourselves so much, you know. So with that said, so we're going to be talking to a specialist on fairy tales today. I'm curious why that's a topic that you were drawn to. Well, I love mythological anything, folklore. I love fairies, trolls. I just love the idea of a story about a magical space where dreams can exist and flourish and fantasies can exist. And I feel like fairy tales are more than, I mean, the the basis of a fairy tale is that they're more than what meets the eye. And Mm -hmm. I love that just as a concept because I feel that. I mean, it's easy to judge me just based on the way that, you know, I present myself. No, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm like, there's a lot. You look like that. such a shy girl. <laughs> I'm very shy, truly. I'm sure. You know, I'm like a quiet, timid person. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I love the fantasy. It's mainly the fantasy for me. I love all things fantasy. V1NO is sponsored by Ukes, the one-stop destination for art and fashion. I love Ukes so much, and it's not just because they were our first ever sponsor for this podcast. They actually have an amazing collection online. Head to ukes.com and see for yourself. I mess up on this podcast all the time. Some of it you hear, the rest of it you don't. That's thanks to Citizens of Sound, a one-stop shop we use for all of our podcasting needs here at V1NO. Citizens will help you with conceptualization, branding, production, editing, and distribution. So whether you're an artist, an actor, or you just think you have a compelling story to tell, podcasting might be the right route for you, and Citizens of Sound are here to help. Head to their website, citizensofsound.com, for more information. Hi. Dr. Gina Jorgensen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm wondering if just to dive into it, if you can give us a little bio of yourself and why you studied fairy tales, what your background is in it, and basically why we're talking to you today. So I am the classic bookworm. I grew up reading everything I could get my hands on. And when I went to UC Berkeley for college, I sort of stumbled into the study of folklore as a real thing you can study and get a degree in. And I was just so fascinated to know that all of the stories, you know, mythology and fairy tales and legends and everything were a legitimate field of study. And moreover, that they help us understand cultures worldwide, past, present, everywhere. So I was really bit by the folklore bug and I went on to get a master's and a PhD at Indiana University. And I'm just still really drawn to the study of folklore because it tells us about ourselves in really artistic and interesting ways. Oh, amazing. So you're a doctor in folklore. Yep. Amazing. (laughs) So I guess my first question would just be very simple. What is a fairy tale? Oh, that is such a good question. I define fairy tales 
as stories that are fictional and formulaic. So nobody thinks, you know, talking animals like the wolf in Little River Riding Hood. No one thinks that actually exists. So they're fictional. We know that Once Upon a Time is make-believe and they're formulaic. So things usually come in threes and the plots usually have a pretty typical pattern that they progress from. And they usually revolve around themes of um, magic and quests and transformations. So you see magical items like magical rings and magic carpets and people often, but not always go on quests. And you usually see some kind of transformation. Maybe a human is enchanted into an animal or there's a sleeping spell, but the characters also sort of grow up in them. They're like coming of age stories and they usually go from low status to high status youthful to kind of mature and single to married. Interesting. Is there a significance to the number three and the fact that or you said that they, things come in threes? Is there any numerical significance? Yeah. Three has been sort of a ritual and magical number in sort of European and Middle Eastern contexts for like centuries. Like the, the number three comes up a lot in the Bible and in various religions from the region. And so, yeah, it's, just, it's kind of all over the place. What it means, there are different interpretations. Like some people think that there are three major life phases that a lot of people go through. Like in ancient Greek mythology, Oedipus was trying to like get back to his home because of this whole prophecy thing. And the Sphinx was this you know magical creature who was a guardian who asked him, what walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the day, and three legs at night? And Oedipus cleverly answered, it, you know, it's a metaphor, it's humankind. You crawl on four legs when you're a baby, you walk on two legs when you're a full-grown human, and you have three legs, like, a, like assisted by a cane in the twilight of your life. So the number three is just kind of all over the place. Interesting. I ask because I have 33. It just follows me in my life. Oh. <laughs> I think three is everywhere, but it does make sense. It would be all over the place and also all over the place. Cool. <laughs> okay. Interesting. My next question for you, are fairy tales different from folklore? Yeah. So they kind of overlap, but they're also distinct. So we define folklore as informally transmitted traditional culture. So folklore is all those parts of a culture or society that you learn peer to peer, face to face. Like you're not learning it from the the human resources handbook or you're not learning it in school necessarily. Folklore is, you know, slang that we use, jokes, proverbs, the way your family celebrates holidays, like just all those areas of culture we pass on informally to each other. And so fairy tales are kind of a part of that because there are still communities worldwide where people do like face to face oral storytelling. But fairy tales are also kind of hybrid with literature. Like a lot of the classic fairy tales were written by Hans Christian Andersen and so on. So they've kind of, they're, they're kind of both folklore because they're constantly changing. There's a lot of variation and they have aspects of pop culture and literature. Like the Grimm brothers, they collected fairy tales from oral tradition. They were like hanging out with women who were spinning and knitting and stuff like that and listening to the stories they told to pass the time. But then as soon as they published them, they started tweaking them and making little changes and sort of enhancing some of the phrases. So fairy tales are kind of both folklore and literature. And nowadays with you know Disney and everything, they're also pop culture. So it gets kind of tangled up a lot. Because you brought up the Brothers Grimm, just because I love this part, because I know that originally the fairy tales were all so like incredibly dark 
right? And they they were mostly to like scare children. Am I on to something here or no? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting. A lot of modern day people have really latched onto this idea that the original tales were like very dark, but it, it really depends. Like some of the Grimm's tales are about peasants who just sort of get lucky and outwit everybody and end up super rich. Like it was just wish fulfillment. But yeah, a lot of the earlier versions from, from the Grimm's and from people writing as well in the 17th century, there's a lot of death, there's cannibalism, there's incest, there's just all kinds of stuff that modern audience would like really shy away from. And at the time in the 1800s, children's literature was slowly becoming a thing. And it looks different than it does today. It was acceptable to scare children into good behavior. So they did have things like, you know, in the Grimm's version of Cinderella, the wicked stepsisters had their eyes pecked out by pigeons at Cinderella's wedding. That was fine. (laughs) That was a deterrent to bad behavior. But in a lot of modern renditions of the tales, people are like, oh, no, it'll scare the kids. That's not okay. Take that out. So... But the point was kind of just to scare the kids. But I guess we're just not as hard these days as they used to be. So what role do fairy tales play within different communities? That's a great question. Fairy tales have always, I think, had multiple purposes or functions to them. They're very multi-layered and multifaceted. So I'll give a sort of an older example and then a modern example. One of the better known fairy tale scholars was Bengt Holbeck. He was Danish and he was studying some tales collected in the 19th and early 20th century by Etang Christensen, who was another Danish collector. And you would have these Danish peasants telling stories about ogres and these local dragons called wyverns and all all kinds of fantastical things. And after really studying this, Holbeck was like, you know, I think that these people, these peasants are telling tales because they live in these agricultural communities where it's actually hard to make enough money to like start your own family and like get a place of your own, get a farm of your own and so on. So if a young man had to vanquish an ogre and a young woman had to fight a witch, those are kind of symbolic representations of the people in your lives whose like disapproval you had to overcome to make your own life. So all of the magic and fairy tales was almost like a metaphor for people like fighting their own battles, like intergenerationally and in terms of social class. So that's one example of what fairy tales do. And because like you can't just walk around criticizing the people in power all the time. So fairy tales give us a coded language to do that sometimes. Flipping to a more modern day example, I think one of the things fairy tales do is they reinforce gender roles and sometimes give us a chance to question them. So, you know, you've probably seen a lot of Disney films have been criticized for being like super heteronormative, like especially early Disney, like Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella. These girls are very passive, very pliant, very beautiful, and often domestically inclined. That sends a message, hey, if you want your happily ever after, you should be like that too. So, you know, people have always had sort of competing ideas though. So there's always been some like more subversive and twisted fairy tales kind of running alongside Disney, but they don't have the same recognition factor. So interesting. It's interesting, like when you're saying that these were kind of codes for people, because now we all use the term trolls for people online. Right? I mean, trolls, I assume, are fairy tale esque So it's still kind of a way of like categorizing your like enemies. You know, they're obviously not actual trolls under a bridge. They're people Mm -hmm. who are saying hateful (laughs) things about you online. Right. That's a great point. Modern day fairy tale. Do you think representation has changed at all? 
Yeah, and I, I think in part Disney has gotten wiser to their reputation. So you have princesses now like Merida who don't get married and Moana and so on. So I think they're trying to kind of have their cake and eat it too. But there are a lot of really wonderful, less known fairy tales that have always been kind of challenging that at the same time. So there's a pretty well-known collection called Kissing the Witch by Emma Donahue, who's an Irish playwright and poet, I think. And in that, most of the women in the stories end up just kind of like walking away from marriages and saying, actually, I'd rather either be alone or be with my lady friend or something like that. So there, there are these sort of stories that queer fairy tales and say, no, it's it's fine to reject traditional gender roles. You can still be happy. I love that. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> Do you have a favorite newer fairy tale that is maybe a little bit more that reads along those lines? My current favorite sort of retelling is a graphic novel called The Magic Fish by Trung Le Win, who's a Vietnamese-American author and artist. And it is sort of a mashup of different fairy tales. But the plot is that this kid, his family came over from Vietnam and he's being raised in America and he speaks more English and his parents speak more Vietnamese. So they read fairy tales to each other. And so that's kind of the way of connecting and, and really having conversations. And at the same time, this kid has realized that he's not straight, but he literally doesn't have the language to tell his parents because they don't have enough language in common. So it's this really touching story of how they use fairy tales and storytelling to form a connection with each other. Brooke also just performed a song called Fish. No, <laughs> maybe not the magic fish, but it's all very full circle. Cool. Okay. It's a very queer song. Awesome. I'm into it. I wanted to ask about sexuality in fairy tales. And I don't really mean like homosexuality or hetero. I just mean like, like, like more directly like sex as a concept. Was that in fairy tales? Like, uh, obviously, now when you're watching a Disney movie, it's not like a sp- they're not like, now we're gonna go home and fuck because we just got married. But I'm wondering if in the earlier versions where maybe they weren't so afraid of where they weren't making it so PG for children, if sexuality was ever a part of fairy tales, and if so, how it was approached. Definitely, yes. So fairy tales are also kind of contiguous with folk tales, which are also fictional forms of storytelling from oral tradition, but also written. So if you've heard of the Arabian Nights or the Thousand and One Nights, it includes some fairy tales like Aladdin and Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves and Sidbad the Sailor. But in a lot of those stories, sex is like really central, like somebody is trying to like cuckold somebody else, like having sex outside marriage. And so, you know, those come from the the Middle Ages and the Muslim world primarily. There was like a lot of sex happening. In the European tradition too, like if you've heard of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales or Boccaccio's mm-hmm. Decameron, those are full of like priests having sex where they're not supposed to and people having affairs. And, you know, these are like the predecessors to fairy tales in a lot of ways. And the more like classic fairy tales, one of the best known examples is in the mid 1600s, there was this guy, Basile, in Italy who was writing down fairy tales and giving these really artistic transformations of them. And in his version of Sleeping Beauty, the king who stumbles upon the sleeping maiden actually has sex with her. So like he rapes her and then like leaves. He just goes off and does his own thing. She gets pregnant and that that doesn't wake her up, but she gives birth to twins <laughs> and that doesn't wake her up. It's when these little babies are trying to find something to suckle on and one of them sucks the splinter of flax from under her fingernail. That was the cursor of the enchantment. That wakes her up. And then she's like, I guess I have these babies. I wonder who the dad is. 
It's a whole mess, but like they do end up happily ever after, which sends a very strange message. So yeah, there are versions of fairy tales that explicitly have sex in them. They have been kind of weeded out of the more canonical ones that we're used to, but it does exist. That's shocking. That's so wild. Yeah. Also, Aladdin was hot. I am just going to throw it in there that Aladdin was hot. (laughs) Am I allowed to say that? (laughs) Yeah, no. Fun fact, though. The Arabian Nights was in circulation throughout the Middle Eastern and Mediterranean world as just this, like, giant manuscript. I think the first one dates back from, like, a 15th century Syrian manuscript written in Arabic. And this French dude, Antoine Galland, was like, I'm going to translate it in the early 1700s. He put Aladdin in there. Like, it wasn't in the earliest texts of the Thousand and One Nights. And do you know the plot of this story? Of a Thousand and One Nights? Yeah. I don't. Do you know it, Brooke? I don't. Okay. So the plot of, of most of the versions in circulation is there are these two brothers who are kings of their own lands, and they're super rich and powerful. And one of them, King Shah Zaman, he catches his wife cheating on him and he is so enraged, he he kills her and the cook. And then he's like sad also that he got cheated on. So he goes to visit his brother, King Shariar, and Shariar is like even wealthier than him and has huge gardens and grounds. And Shariar is like, hey, like, let's let's go hunting. And his brother's like, no, I'm I'm like being emo and mopey or whatever. And so he leaves. And then King Shazaman is kind of moping around the palace and he sees his brother's wife with 20 like harem slave girls, half of whom turn out to be cross-dressed because they have a giant orgy. And after this, Shazamon's like, oh, I actually feel better. I'm not the only one getting like cheated on. And his brother notices this and is like, hey, you, you're restored to the good spirits. You have good color in your cheeks. What's going on? He says, oh, you got to take a look at this. So now they're both kind of like upset and brokenhearted at being cheated on. So they say, we're going to swear off women forever and go on this road trip across the desert and all this stuff. As they're going through the desert, they see this djinn, like a really like a demon scary guy come out with a giant casket that has inside of it a woman and the brothers are hiding in the tree and this demon like gets the woman out of the casket and she starts to like, you know, she, he, she has his head in her lap. She's brushing his hair. He goes to sleep. She sees the brothers and like stares at them and like gestures like you have to come down here or I will wake the demon and he'll kill you. She tells them this like whole sob story of how she was a virgin bride on her wedding night about to marry her love when the demon kidnapped her and keeps her in a box. And then she makes them both have sex with her And the text is not clear, like sequentially at the same time. We don't know. And then she takes their rings and puts them in a box and says, that makes rings number 99 and 100. And these guys are just like mind blown. And then they're like, women are the most treacherous creatures ever. So Sharia returns to his kingdom and starts marrying a virgin every night and killing her the next morning. And he's at this for a while, like they're running out of women. When the vizier's daughter, Shahrazad, says, Father, you must marry me to the king. And they argue back and forth. And finally, she wins out. And what she does is when she marries the king, she tells him a story with a cliffhanger. So he agrees to let her live. And she does this for A Thousand and One Nights, which is the name of the collection, the Arabian Nights or The Thousand and One Nights. And in the process, she bears him three children. And also, like, he kind of comes to his senses and realizes by hearing all these stories of like, wisdom and wit and folly and betrayal and love and family and all the things. There's like a lot of stories in there. He comes to realize that he was wrong and he loves Scheherazade and he's going to stop killing women. Wow. The power of a cliffhanger. (laughs) That's a smart cookie. I send this to my students. They're just like, what? Yeah, that's nuts. I have a question actually for Brooke. Do you have a favorite fairy tale? Is there something that like you remember from childhood or that pops up in your life a lot now? You know what? I do. I really like the princess and the pea. Oh, cute. From what I understand, the princess and the pea is about sensitivity. 
right? Or it's like, it's looking beyond what is right in front of you. And then also it's a, a lesson in sensitivity and like sensitivity as strength, right? Because the queen puts the pea underneath the princess's mattress as a test, because if she really is a princess, she'll be able to feel it because she'll be very delicate. I'm very sensitive and emotional. So I really love that message. Yeah, that's a great story. What about you? I have to say one of my favorites, it's a really weird Cinderella variant. So in this one, instead of Cinderella being persecuted by her stepmother, she is driven out by her father. And in different versions, like there's a king and a queen and they have a daughter and the queen gets ill and dies. And before she dies, she makes her husband promise to only marry someone who, who her ring fits, who her shoe fits, who has the same golden hair or something. And the king looks and looks and it turns out to be his own daughter. And so she's like, uh, yeah, no. And she will usually ask for something like three magical dresses, as gold as the sun, as silver as the moon, as bright as the stars, and some kind of animal cloakskin or covering. And then she runs away to the next kingdom over. And there she kind of works, you know, in the kitchen. So it dovetails with Cinderella here. The prince throws some balls. She wears the magic dresses. She goes, they, they fall in love, blah, blah, blah. It's such a weird story. And it is so close to Cinderella, but like it really fell out of circulation once modern day people were like, incest is not okay to talk about in polite company. But I like the story because the heroine is really resourceful. Like she doesn't really wait for a fairy godmother or someone to pull her out of trouble. She does it herself. And she sort of finds healing in in nature because a lot of the time she spends time like around animals or in a forest or wearing like an animal skin sort of garment. So I think it's it's a weird story for sure, but it's also really empowering. So you'll find the Grimm's version is called All Kinds of Fur. The French writer Charles Perrault has one called Donkey Skin. So it is told all over like Europe and the Mediterranean, parts of North Africa and the Middle East, parts of Asia. So it's, it's really widespread. So again, I wonder like, what were people us- using the story to have conversations about? Mm-hmm. Because it was also a form of like entertainment. It wasn't just for kids to oh yeah, fairy tales learn to be afraid, right? Yeah, for most of their history, they've been by and for adults, and kids were like a side audience, like oh yeah, it'll entertain them too. But yeah, the association of fairy tales with childhood is really just two hundred years old. I just googled <laughs> fairy tales because I was like, do I even know that many? And there's a lot of things that I didn't know. I guess I didn't realize were fairy tales. I just think of them as like kids' stories. I'm seeing the top 20 as like Little Red Riding Hood, Three Little Pigs, Gingerbread Man, I never thought of as a fairy tale, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, I get it. Which also I've seen a stand-up comic make jokes about how it was like one woman catering to seven ugly little men and like how that speaks (laughs) so many truths, you know? Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella... These are fairy tales, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the ones with sort of the more literary origins, like the ones that a lot of people today think of are things like Pinocchio and Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz. Those all started as books, but they kind of disseminated into folklore and fairy tales. Like they really, they became known through oral storytelling and lots of variations were cropping up. Like usually if you can point at something and say, there's only one version of that. Like, you know, when, when you print a book or you film a movie, it just exists in one version. It doesn't matter if I go to Barnes and Noble for the book or Amazon for the book, it's the, it's the same text. But with folklore and fairy tales, usually it just, there's no rules. There's no institution governing it. So you can tell the story with a different ending if you want. You can swap things mm-hmm. in and out. So these fairy tales usually have tons of variations over time. Even if they start out as a book, like a lot of the classics like Pinocchio did. Interesting. Well, 
I'm going to ask what's my last question. And then, Brooke, if you have any remaining questions, feel totally, totally free. I'm really curious about where was the division between fairy tale and maybe urban legend? Or I guess what I'm asking is, were there kids who thought that Pinocchio was, was it told, it must have been told as if it was real. And so I'm wondering if there were things that even adults maybe were like thinking Little Red Riding Hood was a true thing that had happened a couple villages over, or how much did people believe any of this was nonfiction? Yeah, that's a good question. There are always some theories about it. So you know, every so often a website will come up and be like, we found Snow White's castle or something like that. And like, for most folklorists like me, it's like, that is not the most interesting question you could be asking right now. So we tend to think that fairy tales might more broadly reflect reality. Like, you know, maybe Hansel and Gretel is a popular tale because a lot of European communities suffered war and famine for so long. So maybe it resonates on a level that's more emotional or historical rather than this literally represents reality. There's that take on it. When it comes to urban legends, I think of them as a very different folklore genre. They are told as though they're true, as though they could have happened. They probably didn't actually happen. So some of the famous ones are like, you know, alligators in the sewers in New York, the man with a hook who's a crazed serial killer, stuff like that. Check your Halloween candy for razor blades. And so stuff like that, like it doesn't necessarily involve magic, although there are legends about ghosts and UFOs too. But that inspires belief and it might actually inspire someone to take action based on it. So legend is really in the realm of reality or potential reality and fairy tales. Again, I think they're more like emotional reality or symbolic reality, perhaps. Interesting. Okay. Got it. Thank you for that. I guess the the world that we live in today can feel a bit scary and hard to navigate and maybe a little bit chaotic and Um, In your opinion, can we use fairy tales and what they teach us to help navigate? Yes, that is a resounding yes from me. Most fairy tales do have that happy ending. There's always going to be one or two exceptions, like an early version of Little Red Riding Hood where the wolf just eats her. (laughs) End of story. (laughs) But most fairy tales, they, they do show us that glimmer of hope. Like almost every fairy tale in terms of its narrative structure or its plot structure they start with a family dissolving. So Cinderella's mother dies or Sleeping Beauty is cursed at birth. She's never going to have a normal life. So fairy tales show us this progression from your your family is, is broken up. That's one of the worst things that could happen to you to these characters learning and connecting and going out and making friends with animals or encountering a fairy godmother or finding love later in life. So I think fairy tales actually give us a lot of hope and a lot of positive messages. And you you may have to kind of do some searching to find the ones that really speak to you if you're not as into the super mainstream ones necessarily. But there's fairy tale poetry out there. There are fairy tale web comics and graphic novels. There are tons of published collections from all over the world that you can find in libraries. So I do think they are ultimately a very optimistic genre with a lot of messages about human connection. Fabulous. I love that. Yeah, I guess everybody could use a bit of hope these days. So it's nice that fairy tales, at least the modern versions, give us that. The old ones are like, you're going (laughs) to die and be poor and life is going to be horrible. (laughs) As always, it depends. But yeah. Thank you both so much for taking the time to do this. That was so interesting. It's always like, especially the ones where now I'm just like, oh, I actually don't know anything about this. And I want to learn so much more. I'm always so excited about that. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fantastic. 
Like I mentioned in the beginning, Brooke Candy has new music coming out, so stay tuned for that. To learn more about Dr. Gina Jorgensen, you can head to her website, which we'll link in the episode description. V1 and O is produced by Ryan Killian Kraus and myself. Our editors are the good people at Citizens of Sound. I'm Matthias. See you next time. <laughs>